You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. We invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. 31 through 33. If this is your first time here with us this morning, we we have been working verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Ephesians. And today we find ourselves at an end of a section of Ephesians dealing with the issue of marriage. And we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 33. Let me read God's word for us. Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So maybe you have been thinking this morning a little bit like I've been thinking, and I found myself preparing for this message. I'm sure it's crossed your mind. Yet another sermon on marriage. All right, this is the third one in this series of working through Ephesians 5. And for the married among us, perhaps there's a sense of exhaustion. You're still trying to honor Christ in your marriage. You're still repenting from a few weeks ago. And yet here is another sermon on the issue of marriage that yet again, I'm sure the Lord by his grace will convict you of sin in need of repentance. But perhaps others of you will, will feel like these sermons on marriage are like picking an old wound as one who has experienced the sting of a failed marriage. Still others of you are single And you're perhaps growing tired of all this talk about marriage. And of course, there are Christian singles who may sense the calling of God to pursue marriage one day, or people who choose to remain single for kingdom ventures. But discussions of marriage, I think for singles, can can prompt lament in the hearts of those who long to be married, or it can create a sense of ambivalence. I'm not married. What does this have to do with me? But every Christian should have a vested interest in marriage, whether you are married or whether you are single, because Christian marriage serves a unique purpose, not only for the bearing and raising up of the next generation, but as a signpost for the gospel itself, because marriage points to the supernatural union, the marital union between Christ and and the church. So throughout his teaching on Ephesians 5, Paul has continually weaven the gospel in and out as he instructs women to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and as he instructs husbands to love their wives. And all this comes to a point of consummation in verse 32 in our text this morning, where Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
So now that we have learned over the last couple of weeks how God has designed differing roles for the husband and the wife in the marriage covenant, I want us this morning, as we conclude this section of Ephesians, to marvel at how marriage points us to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we work through Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, we will first see this morning the making of marriage, particularly as how Paul refers to the Genesis account in verse 31. And this is a creation pattern, which Jesus affirms in the gospel and that Paul affirms in the New Testament. So we'll see first the making of marriage. Second, we will spend the bulk of our time on this point, and we will consider the mystery of marriage, the mystery of marriage, and the overlooked significance of what it means to be united to Jesus as a church. And then third, we will consider the mission of marriage as we strive to conduct ourselves in holiness, either married or single, as we are ultimately pointing to our future hope of the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the making of marriage, the mystery of marriage, the mission of marriage. Let's first think through the making of marriage. Marriage is God's design. Let's remind ourselves what the scriptures have taught us so far in Ephesians 5. So we've learned that wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of his church. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved through sacrifice and sanctifying love. And as the husband loves his wife, the husband loves himself. So the husband and wife are, are bound, not just through the physical union of sex as the sign and expression of their covenantal love, but the unity actually goes far deeper down into binding souls together in the holy union of marriage. To emphasize this point, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, in verse 31. So look at verse 31. It's a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Paul always roots his teaching on men and women in the creation pattern of Genesis. Gender distinction and the difference of roles between men and women, especially in marriage, are not a consequence of the fall, but a pattern of God's original good and perfect design for men and women in marriage. So although masculinity and femininity are expressed differently in various cultures and generations, the complementary design for men and women is a universal principle. God has implanted the exact pattern for this in creation order. That's why Paul urges women to cover their heads in 1 Corinthians 11. And it's why he also, in that same passage, forbids a man from having long hair. Not because Paul is the fashion police of the first century, but because we should not use our clothing as a way to subvert our God-given gender in whatever given culture we find ourselves in. And so as Paul makes his argument in 1 Corinthians 11, he roots it, you guessed it, in creation order. So we live in a culture that is actively revolting against, rebelling against the gender binary, and the nation has indeed redefined marriage away from its biblical definition. 
But as Christians who build our lives on the authority of God's word, I think we can take some comfort that the natural order of the cosmos confirms the Bible's teaching. Gender and marriage revisionism violates the natural law that God has permeated throughout all of creation. And so as Christians, I think we can find a comfort that not only does God's word say it, but creation demonstrates it. So the creation pattern for marriage is not only affirmed by Paul here in Ephesians 5, but it's also taught explicitly by Jesus. Sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, Jesus, Jesus never said anything about marriage or gender or homosexuality. But such folks demonstrate that they just haven't read the New Testament. So the Pharisees sought to pervert God's design for marriage, and Jesus responds to their erroneous teaching on divorce by pointing back, just like Paul, to the book of Genesis as the pattern for gender, sexuality, and marriage. So what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, here's how Jesus responds. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Paul makes the same move as Jesus does by quoting from the exact passage from Genesis chapter two. Jesus holds to the authority of Old Testament scripture, specifically emphasizing his commitment to the creation pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. And it was Jesus who also said in John chapter 10 that scripture cannot be broken. And it was Jesus who said, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, including Genesis, until all is accomplished. So Christian, we have to remind ourselves, marriage is God's idea. He instituted it. He designed it. We have no right to alter what God has made. The marriage pattern taught in the Bible is consistent with the natural world and our biological design. We are made in his image as male and female. So church, resist the mounting pressure to abandon or to alter what Jesus has affirmed as good and right. Why, why is defending the creation pattern and biblical vision for marriage, why is that vital for our generation? Well, it's because God has modeled the marriage relationship after his ultimate goal to wed his son to his church. So within the pattern of God's design, he has left this giant billboard since Genesis chapter 2, this giant billboard called marriage to signify the coming redemption and the marital oneness that Christ will have with his, with his church. So we are concerned about marriage because we're concerned about making the gospel clear to our culture. This leads, secondly, to consider further the mystery of marriage, the mystery of marriage in verse 32. A lot of ways Paul's teaching on marriage climaxes here in verse 32. It crescendos, look at what he says. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
So as Paul describes the creation pattern in verse 21 by making a direct quote from Genesis, he then states that the institution of marriage contains within it the mystery of God's redemptive purposes that have now been revealed in Christ's coming. In other words, when God founded the first marriage between Adam and Eve, he had in his mind the marriage between Christ and the church. God instituted a marriage between a husband and a wife as a pattern pointing to the redemption of Christ and his union with his church. So the first Adam was joined to his wife and the two became one flesh. So too has the last Adam joined himself to his bride, the church. And so they are one. God's creation of human marriage was the template of the true marriage between Christ and the church. Paul is not just musing here, speculating, but he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and with apostolic authority. And thus Paul in verse 32 gives the true interpretation of Genesis 2 verse 28. Look at what Paul says, and again in the text, verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, referring to Genesis chapter 2, and I am saying, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul isn't just speculating here. He's not just giving his opinion, his own insights. Paul is employing the exact language that Jesus used at the Sermon on the Mount as the true teacher of the law. Ego de lego. But I say to you, this is what Paul does. The true meaning of marriage is fulfilled in the union between Christ and his church. So the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife is a beautiful thing. Right? It's something to be protected, treasured, and enjoyed. But one day, the human institution of marriage will be no more. It foreshadows a more intimate union and a foretaste of more exquisite pleasure. So do you remember how the Sadducees, who denied the reality of a bodily resurrection, they attempted to trip up Jesus? And you remember how they, they tried to do so? They gave him this long hypothetical scenario of a woman who was married to seven different men throughout the course of her life. Each husband died. She was a widow seven times over. And so they asked the question to Jesus, hoping to trip him up. In the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be? Aha, gotcha. And Jesus answered in a way that they could have never expected. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 22. He said, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You see, Jesus says that if you're married, your marriage will one day end. It's till death do you part. At death, the covenant of marriage, the bond of it is dissolved. And on the day of resurrection, when Jesus comes back and when he establishes his kingdom forever, he says that we're no longer going to be given in marriage to one another, for there will be but one marriage, one bridegroom, one bride. At the great wedding feast of the Lamb, the church is the sanctified bride, and she will be joined to Jesus for all eternity. Therefore, as important as marriage is, we ought not to idolize it. Soon, the former thing will pass away. 
and the future reality of our heavenly marriage to Christ will come. But our union with Christ is a reality now, even as we await its consummation. So just as Adam and upon seeing his wife Eve declared in that wonderful first love poem, right? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. So too does Christ say to the church, as Christ beholds us as his bride, he sees his own perfections, his own nature in us. He is the husband who sanctifies and beautifies his bride, cleansing us by the washing of the water with the word, presenting us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. As Christ beholds the church, he sees that she is lovely in her beauty. Jesus relishes in her beauty. And as the beauty of the church comes, not from the church's own righteousness, but from the imputed beauty of Christ's righteousness given to us by faith. You see, the Bible makes it quite clear that every one of us are sinners. We are ugly. We are not holy. We are not righteous. But Jesus came and laid down his life on the cross so that we who might turn from our sins and put our faith in Christ could be one with him. And then Jesus's righteousness is credited to us. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I implore you to be united to Jesus, to turn from your sins, to put your faith in Christ and to receive a righteousness that you cannot attain. The beautiful righteousness of Jesus can only be had as you humble yourself before him and put your faith in him. And we invite you to do that today for the forgiveness of your sins and for your eternal joy in Christ. And this is what Jesus has done. For the church, he has given the church a beauty that he himself must bestow. So the Puritans grasped this idea, the significance of our union with Christ in ways that I think we tend not to do today. And they would lean into this language of marriage to describe the reality of our salvation in Christ. The Puritans are often mocked, and perhaps when I say the word Puritan, you ultimately think of those sort of dour, killjoy, morose sort of people. That's not how the Puritans really were. In fact, they elevated the joy and pleasure known in Christian marriage. You might be surprised to find out that sexual desire and pleasure in marriage were a priority for the Puritans. Unlike the Roman Catholic teaching, which presented sex as a matter of duty, not desire. And so the Puritans saw something in the sexual union of marriage that actually saturated their vision for the Christian life. For them, the Christian life was always about cultivating desire and affection for the pleasures of God. So the Puritans would latch on to Ephesians 5, and they would latch on to books of the Bible like Song of Solomon. And they would use the imagery of marriage to describe their communion with Christ. And so they meditated on the image and symbolism of marriage as a way to stir in their affections and their yearning for Christ. And admittedly, some of them did that in pretty bizarre and awkward ways. <laughs> but still, it's fascinating to me that they saw, almost intuitively, they saw their union with Christ meant pleasurable experiences of communion with God, that their union with Christ brought blessing and pleasure. 
The church's marriage of Christ was begun by faith. It's sealed by the bond of the spirit. But because of their union with Christ, they understood that the church had now opened, Christ had opened heaven's joys and pleasures for individuals to experience in the all-satisfying love of Christ. So Margaret Durham was the wife of Scott's divine, James Durham. And after he died, she wrote the foreword to her husband's sermons on his exposition of Song of Solomon. So fascinating. A wife writing an introduction for her husband's sermons on Song of Solomon. I've, I would love to preach Song of Solomon, but I don't think my wife is quite ready for me to do so yet. But maybe, uh, maybe one day she could write an introduction to that book. But it's interesting, right, that as Margaret Durham writes this forward to a collection of sermons for her deceased husbands, she wrote without embarrassment of love pantings, high delighting, love languishing, and hearts ravishing that she, she equates comes from both marital and spiritual bliss. In other words, her experience of sexual ecstasy in marriage gave her greater understanding of the passion and pleasure of Christ's marriage to his bride that we enjoy in communion with him. John Owen, another Puritan, addressed those without Christ, and he suggested that they, if you don't have Jesus, you might have all the pleasure in the world, but without Christ, they have never experienced true pleasure. He states that, that Christ alone and our participation in him is both the source of true and lasting pleasure. And so John Owen tells them, almost seducing his readers, right, with the pleasures of Christ. And he tells these people who don't know Jesus, he says, a few moments in these joys, when these spiritual joys of Christ in the church are to be preferred above the longest continuance of the carnal pleasures of the world. In describing communion with God, Jonathan Edwards would often use terms like rapturous, ravishment, and even terms like being swallowed up in the love of God. Perhaps your Christian journey has been different than my own, but I grew up in the church, and I often thought that the Christian faith is simply a matter of right articulation of the truth. The gospel was exclusively, as I thought of it, a legal reality. It made me justified before God, declared innocent and righteous. And so I rejoiced in the gospel as, as a young believer, rejoicing just that the word of God says that there was now no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen. But I found that in my daily Christian life, Jesus seemed far and he seemed distant. But as I encountered the Puritans in college, I realized that their biblical vision for the Christian life was filled with affection, of yearning, of longing, of desiring after God. And as I read them, I couldn't help but think that I had missed something in the Bible that they had so obviously had seen. And they talked about communion with God, not just as something future to be experienced when they die, but something they presently longed for and anticipated. And so they were both deeply intellectual and deeply affectionate. They had this affectionate desire for God, a longing for an experience of the knowledge of God. Perhaps, like me, you can find yourself sometimes lacking intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I implore you, give yourself to meditating and contemplating on what it means to be united to Jesus by faith. Lean on the Puritans to help tutor you how to read the Bible 
and how to love Christ and how to let him be the lover of your soul. And as you behold Jesus in his beauty and in his glory, you will find that you can't help but be swept away into holy ecstasy as you love Jesus and as Jesus becomes increasingly lovely and sweet to your soul. God's love for us in Christ is far more satisfying than we can even imagine. Jesus is sweet to his people. Jonathan Edwards preached this. He said, Christ loves the elect with so great and strong a love. They are so near to him that God looks upon them as it were as parts of him. But by our union with Jesus, by faith, we become, as the scriptures say, participants of the divine nature, that we are wedded to Christ and he has permanently set his love upon us. There is no divorce when it comes to the Christian and Christ, right? The bond of eternal love between the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit, this is the pattern of our union with Christ. And so the Holy Spirit has bound us permanently to our husband and to our head. And so as Dustin Benge put it, the same love that flows unceasingly between the Father and the Son now directly flows to the bride. Do, do such thoughts of Christ fill your heart? Christian? Do, do you yearn for Jesus as a bride for her husband? Do you pine for communion with Christ, crying out, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. Do you arise from your bread in the morning and say, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. Do you burst with joy as you sing, even this morning, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. I believe a great reason of our lack of spiritual power in our daily Christian living and the lack of joy we often experience is that we fail to give ourselves to commune with our God, with Christ. We treat our relationship with Jesus so much like this sort of perfunctory reality, a legal reality a sort of loveless marriage that continues merely for our convenience. We want Jesus for his assets, right? The wealth of his righteousness. I want that. That gets me out of hell. But few desire Jesus for his own sake. So few say to Jesus, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. But if we recognize that in the gospel, that we are bound to Jesus as our heavenly husband, then we will yearn to know him as the lover of our souls. We won't be content with distance and unfamiliarity with Jesus, but our hearts will burn with yearning and seeking, wanting to know Jesus more. As, as we consider our marriage to Christ, we have to recognize that we as his church, we are a betrothed in waiting. We are bound to Jesus. Yes, we are. But longing for the pleasures to come from the consummation of our marriage to Jesus hasn't yet fully arrived. Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, but soon he will return. And as we long to be in his presence, in this present age, between the times, we lament his absence and desire deferred, John always says, makes the heart sick. Thus, and here's the mystery, that the longings of love in our human marriages point to gospel realities. 
Caitlin and I don't like to spend time apart very long, but shortly after I exited my last ministry assignment, let's just say under duress, I was scheduled to travel to Columbia, South America to teach a week-long course on the doctrine of God to a cohort of future pastors in the country. And so I was jobless and discouraged thousands of miles from my family in the middle of nowhere with a language barrier. And it wasn't easy even to make phone calls or FaceTime. Wi-Fi was bad. I couldn't get signal. I was in the rural mountains. There was no way to, to phone home on any sort of regular basis. And the isolation compounded my misery. And I found my heart growing miserably homesick, yearning to be home with my wife. And of course, the joy of seeing her face after such time and distance filled me with incredible joy. The Christian life is like that as we consider our marriage to Christ. That when it seems like Jesus has withdrawn from us, our hearts ache for him. We yearn for his pleasure, the pleasure of his presence. And when he comes to us in our lives in sweet communion, we burst in happiness. And so in our present age, our communion with God can feel sporadic. We experience this sweet communion at God's sovereign pleasure through the taking up of the means of grace but the saint will one day find his everlasting rest when Jesus will bring us to the banqueting house and his banner over us will be love as he embraces us for all eternity. Married brothers and sisters, listen carefully. The best moments of your marriage, the moments of deepest affection, intimacy, and joy do not rival what awaits us in heaven. Unmarried brothers and sisters, the marital bliss that you may miss in this life is but shadows compared to the substance that you will experience with Christ in heaven. Earthly marriage is but the hors d'oeuvres of the feast of the banquet of heavenly love. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying, Paul is saying, it refers to Christ's and the church. Let's thirdly consider the mission of marriage, the mission of marriage. Paul forces us to meditate upon our union with Christ. He does it in the letter for us, going with him to ponder the great mysterious implications of how marriage is a picture of our union with Jesus. But in verse 33, Paul sort of descends from the lofty heights of meditating on the church's mysterious marriage to Christ Maybe you are asking me to do the same this morning, right? Just cut, cut it straight. Tell me what I need to do. And so he summarizes his ethical instructions for married couples in verse 33. And so while it's worthwhile to meditate on the ethereal, on our mysterious marriage with Christ, Paul does bring it back to the practical in verse 33. Look at what he says. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A Christian marriage should be a billboard pointing those passing by toward the kingdom of God. When the husband and the wife embrace their God-given roles in their marriage, then their marriage becomes a testimony to the power of the gospel. 
As we proclaim the gospel with our mouths, it should be demonstrated in our lives. That's what Paul's been doing ever since chapter four of this letter, helping us see how the gospel has practical ramifications. And Paul includes marriage as part of the way we testify to the power of the gospel. So a Christian marriage reproduces in micro the beauty shared between Christ and the church. A Christian husband and a Christian wife must see their marriage as part of their great commission work. As we proclaim the gospel to others, we must display the beauty of the gospel in our marriages. It's one of the reasons why we find weddings so compelling. The ethereal love story of Christ's love for the church is why God gave us marriage in the first place. And so every time we see a bride and her splendor walking down the aisle, and every time we see the joyous anticipation of the groom's tearful smile, and every time that couple stands before God and those witnesses pledging their vows to enter into the covenant of marriage, they are reenacting the biblical love story whether they realize they're doing so or not. But Christians, we understand what's really going on. We understand the mysterious meaning and purpose of marriage. We understand that marriage is a sign pointing to Jesus. And so we should gladly embrace God's design as a way of clearly communicating the gospel to the world. The world has left behind this biblical definition of marriage the good design of male and female complementarity. And they've left behind the gift of sex as the capstone of the marriage covenant. But as Christians, we will, we must joyfully embrace God's good design and we must encourage others to do the same. We know that God's design for marriage and sex and children, it's a good thing for human flourishing. And we shouldn't be surprised that the culture's rejection of God's vision for marriage and family continues to unleash wave after wave of untold human suffering, particularly suffering inflicted upon our children. And so we, as God's people, we must hold the biblical teaching of marriage in our culture as a way to encourage them to, eat, to adopt it, as a way for them to love, as a way for us to love our neighbor. But more than that, why do we care about marriage, about gender, about sex, and a culture that's so rebellious against what the Bible says? We care about it because we care about the gospel. We care about the gospel. Human marriage is a sign pointing to the reality of heavenly marriage between Christ and the church. And so Christian, examine your marriage if you are married. Are you embracing your God-given responsibilities as a husband or as a wife? Is your marriage a clear witness and sign to the gospel? Many Christians conceal the mystery of marriage by failing to live according to God's design for husbands and wives. And so if their marriage was designed by God to be a billboard to the world, it is a sign that is overgrown by weeds of the flesh, bitterness, lust, Adultery, abuse, anger, making obscure what God is intended to display in the covenant. But as we, as God's people, filled by the Spirit, walk in a manner worthy of our calling, 
Our marriages should be marked by holy light that exposes the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And by the conduct of our lives, the sweetness of our marriages and the joy of our homes, others around us, particularly those who are lost, they should see the beauty of the gospel that we're telling them, that we're proclaiming to them, that our world should be able to catch a glimpse of Christ's lavish and unending love for his church in your marriage. The world should see that. This is one of the reasons why Christian hospitality, especially for married couples, can be a powerful means for evangelism. As we show hospitality to outsiders, we welcome them into our homes to see, to feel, to experience, to witness a Christian marriage. And it is in the intimate boundaries of the household that non-believers will observe the goodness of marriage and see it as a sign to the gospel we're trying to tell them about. They will see the husband sacrifice and serve his wife. They, they will see how the wife respects her husband. They will feel the affection and the warmth of the household. They will be drawn to the home because even though they don't understand it, that the harmony and love in that home points to a heavenly reality. A Christian home has a magnetism to it because every human being is made in the image of God and yearns for communion with God. So by faithfully living out God's design for marriage, the Spirit will bring greater power to our witness of words. The holiness of God's people strengthens our witness to the world. But not only do married people have a mission to make the mystery of Christ's marriage clear to the world, but so do Christian singles. Whether you are single for a season or whether you are called to lifelong singleness by the Lord, you can testify to the world in your singleness that your ultimate hope isn't in sex or relationships, but in the coming wedding feast of the Lamb. We don't need marriage to be truly human. There was no one more fully human than Jesus. And he never married a woman and he lived his entire life as a virgin. Who says, who says you need sex and marriage to be human? And yet Jesus's singleness on earth bore witness to this heavenly marriage he came to establish by his death. Jesus didn't take an earthly bride because he came to rescue his heavenly bride. So when Christians embrace a single and a chaste life entirely devoted to the Lord, they also point to the world that their yearning and longing is for Christ. While our sexualized world considers celibacy dehumanizing, we know as God's people, with God's word, that sexual pleasure is nothing but a signpost to a better union. In his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, Sam Alberry writes this. He says, celibacy isn't a waste of our sexuality. It is a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. And while singles uniquely and powerfully point to the hope of our marriage to Christ, singles should still care about the clarity of the gospel in human marriages. Singles should still pray and encourage their married brothers and sisters to be faithful. It's interesting. Paul is writing this text. Paul 
is a single man writing to the Ephesians about marriage. Paul, why do you care? <laughs> why do you care about marriage? Well, he cares because he cares about the gospel. That's why. So singles care about marriage. Encourage, support, serve, and pray for your married friends, even as they strive to do the same for you, that you would honor the Lord in your singleness and in your chastity and in your holiness, pointing others to Christ. We need one another. We need to encourage one another as a church family in whatever circumstances the Lord has called us to, whether in marriage or whether in singleness. So no matter our marital status, we all have a mission, a mission to point others to our great hope of our heavenly husband. We must live with this hope of our future consummation with Christ in mind. We should always be looking forward to this great marriage supper of the lamb described in Revelation chapter 19. In fact, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there to Revelation chapter 19. Let's get a glimpse of this great day that is to come. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of, many, of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Church, our identity is not found in being a husband. It's not found in being a wife. Our identity is not found in our experiences of sexual pleasure or lack thereof. Our identity is found in Christ. It's found in Christ. My beloved is mine and I am his. That is the song of the Christian. He, Jesus, has set his love upon us. He has washed us clean as his bride. He will present us in the splendor of his holiness without blemish before him. He will come back for us. He will gather us for himself. He will ravish us with the pleasure and the ecstasy of his love for all eternity. And so we behold Jesus in his beauty. And so will we be swallowed up in his eternal love, joined in the ever-deepening intimacy of unending communion with Christ. Make haste, our beloved Lord Jesus. Make haste and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spice. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come. Come soon. We long for you. We desire you. Would we long to be at that great wedding supper of the Lamb that we long for? Jesus, we are so humbled that you would see sinners like us and or choose from before the foundation of the world to unite us into yourself. Lord, you have loved us by dying for us, by taking on our sin, our shame, and our punishment. And Lord, as you have awoken our hearts to the truth of the gospel, we have responded with repentance and faith. And Lord, so we are bound by your spirit 
to you for all eternity, those of us who are Christian. Lord, I pray for all who know Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would long for that great wedding feast to come. Lord, whether single or whether married, Lord, may we all by the conduct of our lives point to our great hope of the fulfillment of marriage, the mysterious meaning of marriage being between Christ and the church. Lord, I do pray for those this morning who don't know Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see his beauty this morning, to see his holiness, to see their lack of it. And Lord, that they might humble themselves before Jesus, that they would repent and believe and so be bound to him in faith and united to his church. And Lord, that they too might know what it means to be a participant of your pleasures. Lord Jesus, we love you. And Lord, as we respond to your word, we pray that our hearts would expand in greater joy and gladness as we worship together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.